You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Alan Kelly from Trinity College, Dublin. His paper was entitled, For the Herbs Did Never Grow, The State of Ireland, 1515, Political Discourse and Literary Conceit. The well-studied tract dated to 1515, known as the State of Ireland and Plan for its Reformation, is a unique and valuable source, not merely for its concrete snapshot of Ireland at that time, but for early Tudor Irish history. The document is equally significant as it was written to inform, induce and instruct crown policy in Ireland. But its persuasive rhetoric, articulate but at times a little obscure, can reveal telling aspects of the writer, the addressee and scholarly pursuit at court. Um, briefly, um, for a little historical uh, context, by the late 15th century, the Fitzgeralds of Kildare became the most powerful noble family in Ireland through acquisition of land, a sizable armed force and political influence by frequently engaging in both Gaelic affairs and use of coin and library. English intervention in Ireland generally did not materialise until the reign of Edward IV. The expedition of Edgecombe and legislation passed by Poynings were moved towards bolstering Crown authority in the Lordship, although military efforts were largely unsuccessful. At the time of the document's composition, circa 1515, in addition to resentment from the butlers of Ormond, Kildare was opposed by a growing number of palesmen, predominantly William Darcy, Patrick Finglas, and later Robert Cowley, who primarily objected to his use of Gaelic kern and exacting coin and livery. And I will just emphasize here that the 1515 state paper is uh, extremely anti-Kildare in tone. The growing idea of absolute monarchy influenced the administration of Henry VIII through his chief minister and renowned politician, Cardinal Wolsey. And during the 1510s, articulate anti-Kildare voices in the lordship called for what they saw as their only option to, quote, remedy the realm in Ireland uh, through the sword. The anti-Kildare stance of the 1515 document largely spurred the writer, who's anonymous, we're not sure precisely who wrote him, possibly Hewing, William Rokeby, or, uh, or John Kite, but the anti-Kildare stance of the 1515 document largely spurred the writer to secure policy, crown policy, along these lines. Importantly, a specific manner of petition can be seen in this 1515 document through unravelling the evident literary presence in this state correspondence. 
It is an unusual kind of state paper because of a number of literary conceits or references to uh, scholarly material, which is uh, striking, very unusual in a, in a state memorandum. Few papers, uh, few state papers survive to 1520, um, a fact I wish to underline for the purposes of this paper. This study chiefly assesses the literary side to the 1515 state paper in order to explore the historical context from a slightly different angle and illuminate some sides of the author, perhaps, and uh, a side to courtly literature that is often overlooked in the, uh, in the uh, sources. Due to numerous scholarly, literary, and prophetic references, the 1515 State of Ireland uh, is a most unusual state paper. Most frequent among these literary references are citation of a certain text known as the Salus Populi, whose author is enigmatically known and referred to throughout the 1515 document as the Pandar. Very, very unusual. This Pandar is in fact, uh, I believe, Pandarus from Chaucer's Troilus and Cressidae, while the title Salus Populi seems to be taken from the Roman author Cicero and his De Legibus. Um, I should also mention at this time, and my, my apologies that I'm throwing so many uh, titles and authors out, I don't wish to confuse you, but I should mention at this time that I've, I've come to believe that the 1515 state paper is part of a trilogy of documents um, we have this Salus Populi by the Pander, who's a, which is very prominent in the 1515 state paper. There is an abstract of the Salus Populi uh, in manuscript form in Trinity College, Dublin, which on closer inspection appears to be rather a draft of the 1515 state correspondence. And then we have the 1515 state correspondence. So I... Apologies if that sounds a little bit confusing. I perhaps should have some slides and have it spelled out, but I'll, I'll keep referring to this trilogy of documents, so I'll, I'll try and keep it as, as, as concrete and unconfusing as possible. In the Salus Populi of the Pander, um, a prophetic scene is described where St. Bridget consults an angel seeking knowledge of the, quote, secret divine, end quote, and the Christian nation uh, in greatest danger of damnation. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and the, the Pastorabalis of St. Gregory are also incorpor incorporated into the 1515 state paper. And very briefly regarding the title Salus Populi for the title of the Panders, Salus Populi, um, Cicero's original um, De Legibus mentions um, Olis Salis Populi Suprema Lex, which means the safety of the people shall be their highest law. And this would be a very suitable uh, sentiment uh, to, express, uh, to express pale um, outlooks in, in the 1510s. Through exploring the scholarly content of the 1515 document and unraveling these literary conceits, it leads to a number of intriguing conclusions. Chaucer is repeatedly invoked throughout the document, along with classical writers, ancient myth, myth and the works of the early church fathers, specifically St. Gregory. The mysterious pander appears as a voice throughout the tract, and at one stage, along with St. Bridget, and instructions on Irish policy, according to the author of 1515, are, are, are directed or are, are encouraged um, 
through advice from these figures. There is an almost Gnostic dimension to how Bridget, in the 1515 state paper, um, asks the angel for secrets um, regarding the Irish people. The elusive healing herbs that the author then goes on to say that are missing in Ireland. Pander says that the herbs um, did never grow in Ireland, and these herbs uh, are a metaphor for effective crown policy. And as I mentioned, there's an almost Gnostic, Gnostic dimension to that. And the pander laments the absence of these herbs. A number of years before this state paper was written, the Salus Populi appears to have circulated. And the 1515 state paper almost is um, an advertisement of sorts. Um, it certainly advocates the reading of this Salus Populi. The author, as I was uh, mentioning, of the 1515 state paper is uncertain. But he certainly seems to have been on cordial terms with uh, Cardinal Woolsey, to whom the letter is addressed. Uh, John Kite, William uh, Rokeby and Hewing are possible candidates for authorship um, as an aside uh, from close textual analysis of relevant sources. Um, I, I believe the writer to be uh, Hewing, the former um, Bishop of Mead and Archbishop of Dublin. But this is very much an aside. Uh, according to the abstract of the 1515 state paper, the Salus Populi was delivered at court. <coughs> In Latin, sometime prior to 1512, I, I assume, around which time Ing returned from Rome and came to the attention of Cardinal Woolsey. So, from this point of view, it, it would be less surprising that he would be reminding Woolsey of this impressive document that was that he wrote and circulated at court a number of years prior, prior to his appointment um, in Ireland as Bishop of Mead. Regardless of authorship, however, the manner in which the author of 1515 blends literary conceit with state memorandum is in itself an interesting angle. But I feel, importantly, it allows for observation on how office holders advance at court and communicate in order to enhance their reputation and scholarly stock, so to speak. The writer of the 1515 state paper if referring to himself as the pander, and I suspect that the author of the 1515 state paper is also this pander who wrote the Salus Populi, um, it, it, this would not be without precedent in the early Tudor era. A classical style alias of sorts can be seen in a relationship between court officials just a, a decade or so um, earlier in the time of Henry VII. Bernard André, a tutor to Arthur, son of Henry VII, Henry VIII's <coughs> older brother, um, this Bernard André was a court poet and a historian, and he holds much in common with the author of the 1515 state paper. They share a similar writing style, similar scholarly interests, and also a cordial relationship, it appears, with their direct supervisors. The Ireland of Bernard Andre, and he, he wrote a number of histories and uh, a triumph uh, of Henry VII, 
which includes some ref- very brief references to Ireland as uh, Cyclops' clay- cave. The Ireland of Bernard Andre is, is a the Cyclopean cave, a place of savage thievery. Even within the correspondence of state, there appears to be scope for cordiality and uh, a certain literary clique. As the writer of, 15, of the 1515 state paper is, describes himself as panderous or pander to Woolsey, um, this Bernard Andre also had a close relationship with the chief minister at the time, who was Richard Fox, whom Andre called his Mycenas, um, representing himself as Horace, the renowned literary protege of Gaius Mycenas, advisor to Octavian. So we have a a similar kind of a dynamic relationship between the politician and their immediate supervisor, which is marked by a, a kind of a literary clique. The trilogy of documents culminating in our 1515 state paper uh, features a novel application of this kind of learning, this kind of humanist learning and classical allusion to Irish affairs. Chaucerian literature, medieval literature, and recent scholar, contemporary scholars at the time, such as John Fortescue, are all influences which are blended together in this 1515 state paper. The Salus Populi and the 1515 correspondence also have a particular intellectual potency that appeals specifically to Woolsey, and the writer is clearly on amicable terms with the cardinal. It would, be, uh, it would not be a far stretch to imagine uh, Woolsey as uh, having read uh, Chaucer or even had Chaucer's Troilus and Cressidy performed at court and this character, Pander the Pan- Pandarus from Troilus and Cressidy, um, is a frequent voice throughout the 1515 state paper. paper. And uh, just to quote from the abstract, uh, of the 1515 state paper, which is very similar to the 1515 document itself. Also, this pander, I quote, all the world should studying for a medicine to deliver the said land of infirmities um, or find some other medicine to deliver the land of the said infirmity that could find no other medicine. It might for any other remedy, but the said herbs and drugs by the, and by such concessions as uh, of weapons and harnesses and so on. Um, this is a way of the writer to guide crown policy in Ireland at the time, looking for military and for money to be invested in the Lordship of Ireland, rather. But the use of herbs and drugs as a metaphor for this is a clear allusion to Chaucer, specifically his his Troilus and Cressidy. The use of healing herbs as a metaphor runs deep. Not only does it directly conjure the political skills of Pandarus and Chaucer's Troilus and Cressidy, it is also an image from the original Roman classical source which inspired the title Salus Populi. And it gets a little confusing when I'm talking about the ancient Salus Populi, the Salus Populi written by the Pander, which I speculate was written pre-1512, the abstract or draft of the 1515 state paper, and then the 1515 state paper itself. I was kind of working backwards from reading the 1515 state paper, which can be confusing when I'm referring to all its influences, but it, it comes together. Uh, it comes together through constant uh, looking over and connecting these sources. But apologies, uh, I'll be as uh, simple and concrete as I can. The ancient Salus Populi, early influence here, Cicero opens his De Legibus, which 
contains the, the saddest popular reference, with reference to the sacred undying olive tree on the Athenian Acropolis, which was planted by the verses of philosophers. Um, it's rather abstract the way he describes it. This uh, rings with the uh, rhetoric of the 1515 state paper through its literary conceit. Even more interestingly, as Bridget seeks out the secret divine in Pander Salis Populi, and this scene is also described in the 1515 state paper, Cicero describes a legendary Roman king Numa consulting the goddess Egeria for counsel in a sacred olive grove. So we have a reinvention of this uh, classical Roman scene in, from uh, true Christian eyes um, in, the 15th, in, the, in the Salus Populi by the Pander, which is regurgitated again in the 1515 state paper. Returning to our trilogy of documents, um, a Trojan War analogy and a reference to St. Gregory are specific to the 1515 state paper. They don't appear in the abstract, although I'm uncertain if they were in the original Salus Populi. But they, these references to the Trojan War and St. Gregory, they lend the 1515 state correspondence a heightened literary setting with wisdom from the early church fathers. And one can assume that the author of 1515 modified the Salus Populi along these lines with a view to sharpening the correspondence as an effective state memorandum. And I'm momentarily rewinding back to the opening lines of the 1515 state paper to tease out another side to this Chaucerian pander analogy. There are also Homeric influences. Preceding the introduction of the pander in the 1515 document, we have a rather striking analogy between the presence of Gaelic captains in battle and that of Hector among the Trojans. Again, strange to come across this in a state memorandum. The continual war of Ireland, lamented in the prophecy, resonates with the Trojan siege, which persisted throughout the history, throughout history rather, in Homeric epic. As the Pander and Brigetta, quote, did understand Ireland, the Chaucerian or Homeric Pandarus empathizes with the troubles of Troilus. So these literary scenes that the author is referring to ring true with the, the spirit of, the, of what the, the writer is trying to describe in Ireland at the time. The continual war of Ireland, and this continual war is a recurring theme, not just in the 1515 state paper, but in early Tudor political discourse, especially in documents emanating from the Pale, uh, is a universal theme in early Tudor anti-Kildare tracts, but is raised in a creative and literary manner in this, in this trilogy of documents. Again, Chaucer is a conduit for reinventing Irish affairs in the style of scholarship pursued at court. And obviously the writer wouldn't um, refer to Chaucer in indirect ways if it wasn't popular at court at the time. There, uh, Chaucer is also very unusually um, referred to, uh, and I'll just quote from the 1515 state paper, 
the writer mentions that the pride of France, the treason of England, and the war of Ireland shall never cease. This is, um, I believe, is a reference to um, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which touches upon the matter of France, um, or Chanson du Geste, medieval French lyric, um, not a million miles away from the Arthurian legends. The pride of France and the treason of England are a direct quote from this. But the War of Ireland certainly isn't part of um, the matter of France or Chanson du Geste. This is something that the writer of 1515 has woven into the uh, into this particular quote to apl- uh, make it applicable to Irish affairs. To conclude, um, as I've already mentioned, it's a strange, it's a funny kind of state paper with unusual references. And it, it takes a little bit of teasing out and a little bit of backtracking and uh, working backwards from the 1515 state paper and its literary influences to um, tease out um, exactly what the author was trying to convey or what message he was trying to get across by alluding to Chaucer, Homer, um, the early church fathers and indeed Cicero. But most importantly of all, the Salus Populi, which I believe um, was written by the author of the 1515 state paper himself. The writer of the 1515 document advocates for the previously issued but insufficiently heeded Salus Populi. The practical political aims of the document are well studied, but in the light of what has been discussed here, it is the manner of petition in other words, the literary style and the literary allusions that sheds light on both the author, scholarly values at court, and the means by which an ambitious, well-educated politician may achieve promotion, advancement, or, at the very least, secure attention. And in a period where relatively few state papers are available, this correspondence, the 1515 correspondence, was held and it was preserved. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.